Hello and welcome to episode 33 of the Figure Podcast. Each week we figure out people, numbers and images of the past, present and future. And I wanted to begin this week by saying thank you so much to everyone who gave us feedback on the Michael Jackson section in particular from last week's episode. I was really, I don't know, is excited the right word? But... Really intrigued to see how people reacted to it yeah and I really oh, I felt like I had a lot to say about it because um, it kind of moved me so much it's something that I think impacts anybody who watches it and I'm always curious to see what people's thoughts mm-hmm. are if they've watched it and if they haven't watched it why they've decided not to watch it because a lot I feel like I've convinced quite a lot of people to watch it so actually most people I ask have either seen it and and sought it out mm. like me or Actually, with you, I remember one of those I wouldn't people, have watched it if you I hadn't said, told you me to. I have to watch it. I've told about four or five people to. Mm. Um, so, this week, I have been sort of inundating myself with some of the topical news items, including the fact that New Zealand has now passed a law on gun legislation within six days of the mass shooting, um, which is really cool. I mean... Jacinda Ardern's leadership has me in awe yeah i know it's so it's the most unimaginably awful thing to happen and she has led the country and been such an incredible example for every other leader all over Mm. the world i will say though that that i guess the uh, looking into this further the gun culture in new zealand is different from the united states and the guns in new zealand is definitely privilege there's so much you have to go through in order to be able to have a gun it's very much about sport and hunting mm. whereas in the u.s it's the second amendment it's a right of personal protection. and they see it as personal protection exactly yeah it's a security exactly it's totally different mindset yeah it is a different mindset which is why it was easy to part easier to part you know you couldn't imagine anything like that happening in the u.s i mean oh as, as in the sh- they wouldn't be able to do, yeah they passing the, pass the, the legislation against mm. it i was good i thought you meant something like that mass shooting happen. <coughs> oh, no, there are so many in so many. so many. And also the Mueller report. I'm really intrigued. Tell me about that. To see what's going to... Well, Robert Mueller was uh, uh, hired by the FBI um, to look into collusion between Trump and Russia and the Trump administration. There have been six arrests uh, in the Trump administration in the last 22 months and dozens of Russians... And he submitted it to the Attorney General last Friday. And we'll find out any day now what is in that report. But it's up to the Attorney General whether he brings it to Congress and asks Congress if they should take any legal action against the President. And how close is the Attorney General to the President in the... He was appointed by the President. Okay, so for it to be <laughs> completely truthful... Well, we, don't, we just don't know what he, can, he will reveal or not reveal. Interesting. Mm. And also, if someone is... So there is a potential for further corruption on a report of oh, totally. about just corruption. Because, just because this report may not allude to collusion or we may not hear that it alludes to collusion doesn't mean that it didn't happen. Right. Um, also, often in these cases, if someone is innocent, for example, they don't reveal any of the report at all just to keep that person's name from being kind of tarnished by it. But because it's Donald Trump and because it's the president and because it's Russia collusion, which is what we hear about all the time, they're going to have to reveal to the public what something, in, something exactly. So I'm really looking forward to seeing what's in there. Yes, <laughs> I've had a lot, not such a current affairs week. 
I've listened to some great podcasts, as always. Great. Especially because I'm back in London and there's more commuting and yeah. on every Do bus. Do you find that? that actually... Yeah, I listen to way more podcasts when I'm in London. Okay. Because a lot of people say to me, oh, how do you have the time to listen to podcasts? And it's because I commute. Mm. Commute is every, is at least one thing that's guaranteed in my day. Exactly. Day. Yeah. Yeah. So my favourite was Rose McGowan on the Sunday Salon. And I'd never listened to an interview with her before. Don't know how I've got this far in my life mm. and not done that. Such an interesting life. I'm really wanting to buy her memoir mm-hmm. and read it called Brave. She talks about her um, experience growing up in a cult in Italy. Called the Children of God. Yeah. Yeah. Um, she talks about obviously her experience of sexual abuse, Harvey Weinstein allegations, the mm. fact that she felt like her phone was a live wire kind of bomb about mm. to go off constantly. And she's had that for 18 months more. Mm. I can't imagine that. Every time mm. you pick up your phone, you're just terrified of what is going to be on there. But she was I one th- of the first allegations against Harvey Weinstein that, that was made so public with the. New yeah. York Times article that was written by Ronan Farrow. Yeah. I think. Yeah. Um, and so it was huge. I can't imagine how what her life was mm. like pre. And but she's also been quite of. excluded from the Times Up movement, which is linked to the Me Too movement, which she has helped spearhead. Mm-hmm. And the interviewer asked her about it, and she said, "Well, actually, I've never been included in Hollywood and those circles anyway. It doesn't really surprise me that I'm not included in this." Mm. She's very uh, open about her experiences and uh, unapologetic. She talks about her experience with the red carpet and how the cameras just sound like bullets, and your instinct is to run, but you can't because you're wearing a really tight dress and really really high heels and you've got people screaming at you to stand in a certain way so that they can get your most kind of curvaceous angle it just sounds so abusive and it's become so weirdly normalized that we don't ever think what it's like for those people on the Mm. red carpet just being screamed at it is weird it is really weird and have so many flashes in their faces the other podcast i've listened to is how to Care Way Less About Life Milestones by Nobody Panic with Stevie Martin and Tessa Coates. Really recommend that episode. No matter... That's a really good idea. Really good idea for... um, I mean, all of their topics are great. They're Mm. always how-to. And they... I think it's good to listen to no matter how old you are, really, because whether you're in your... What's before 20s? Teens? Teens. 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 What do you think is before tweens? Tens. Uh, single digit numbers I mean I probably wouldn't recommend it to a nine year old I don't know if it would probably go a bit over <laughs> no, their I know, head but I just... <laughs> <laughs> and it just talks about how society and just school and university and just people in general and everyone just has these ideas of what they want to achieve by a certain age mm. and actually those timelines are really dangerous because you are so dangerous you always just you're, you're setting yourself up to be disappointed exactly or to feel like you are at a different stage to everybody else and then that makes you feel a bit unlone and complicated and I think everyone just needs to Or you settle for something that isn't actually good enough. Yeah. You know, so I think, I don't know, I feel like this is what happens to a lot of women may get to their late 20s or early 30s and be like, oh my God, I haven't got married and everyone's getting married Mm -hmm. and then may marry the wrong person. Yeah, totally. They feel this pressure too. Mm. I think my mum would say quite openly that she got married too quickly mm. to her first husband, mm. where it was she, the the thirty milestone was 
mm. looming. Mm. Um, there are obviously other reasons as well, but I think that people can, if they get too defined by their age, can really hold you back or kind of send you off on the wrong path. Definitely. Um, the final one is Jamila Jamil with Emma Gannon on Control Alt Delete. And she talks about the progress of her campaign, I Weigh, which we covered on a previous episode of the podcast, which was inspired by the Kardashians and a photo where somebody had put all of their weights on the photo. And she thought it was what they were worth, which is equally sickening. But In money. Yeah. Oh, but actually it was okay. their weight. And she just thought, this is ridiculous. This would not happen to men. Yeah. And why are women so defined by their weight? Why is this such a huge thing? And so she started an so Instagram. True. So interesting, yeah. isn't it? Started an Instagram account where she encourages people, or she actually just did it herself and then other people did the same to say, I weigh my relationship, my career, um, these achievements, my this children, this happy yeah. moment, you know, this unhappy moment, this mm struggle with mental health, mm. this mountain that I climbed, whatever it is, and other people can do their own posts. And it's this just beautiful, positive, real, open gallery in in Instagram format. And they are developing it into a company now, which is great. And they've got a series of interviews. The first one is with Sam Smith about body positivity and kind of body image and dysmorphia. So that was really interesting. The first figure we're talking about today is Sir Ian McKellen, the actor. He was born in 1939, so he is going to be turning 80 later this year, and he's been doing a tour around the country as part of that. He has been awarded six Olivier Awards over his lifetime. He was a scholar at Cambridge, and he did 23 plays over his three years, which is so many plays. So many plays. A uh, very renowned Shakespearean actor and went on to do things like Gandalf in The Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit and appeared in the X-Men movies and many others, including Mr. Holmes, which is one of my new favourite films. And Charlotte, <laughs> why are we talking about him today specifically? Because he's a national treasure and we love him. <laughs> also, Charlotte listened to his episode on the David <laughs> podcast. And was that like, too. I love him. Yeah. We should do it on the podcast. Um, yeah. And also his role as an LGBTQ activist. Yeah, and has been what, and has been for years and years and years. I yeah. Think even before Section Twenty Eight was passed. Was it then, repealed? You mean? No, like when it was actually. Oh, I see. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In the 80s. It was repealed only like, recently, only in like, 2002 or something. Yeah. Um, and for anyone who doesn't know, Section 28 um, was passed by the Conservative government under Margaret Thatcher, saying that it would be illegal to promote, quote-unquote, homosexuality in schools. I.e. talk about it. Yeah. And be educated about it. And it just sort of added to this idea that uh, a child would be disadvantaged in some way if they were gay. I think one of her reasons was that she wanted every child to have an equal start to life, which meant that if they were educated in, you know, LGBT, mm. um, that they wouldn't necessarily be. And Andrea Leadsom recently, didn't she say something about... She said something controversial in that she feels that parents should have the right to pull their children out of LGBTQ lessons because mm. she thinks that they should know when they should be quote-unquote exposed to that information. Do you think that's the same with parents choosing to take their kids out of sex ed classes? Because you know that's there is always one kid who like isn't allowed to do it. There definitely wasn't at my school. Oh, really? there was Although the sex education at my school was terrible. Yeah I know but that's changing. 
Yeah. Which is good. But is that, do you think, because I feel like I can understand it from that perspective. If you think, right, my child, I don't want my child to be exposed to sex I just think it's really, I just don't like the censorship of it. I think Mm. that that's, for me, it implies that you're imposing certain beliefs on your children. No, but about sex in general. Sex in general. Mm. Like, imagine, like, I feel like it would be okay if they were like, no sex ed, no LGBTQ at all. I don't know. I I wouldn't do that. No, I wouldn't. I wouldn't do that. I feel like a parent does have a right to have, to make that choice if they want to. Um, And not be exclusive over... And not be exclusive over LGBT, LGBT lessons. But of course, that will probably be what happens. Yeah. So this has been in the news recently as well because um, some schools in Birmingham uh, have a campaign called No Outsiders, started by an openly gay teacher, Andrew Moffat. And it's all about inclusivity, seeing and embracing the differences in people, and realizing that everybody has a place in the society has things to say, can speak up for themselves, stand out for other people. It's a really positive campaign and lessons that he has been leading. And there have been protests from both Christian and Muslim parents who want to abolish these lessons. But they have not been stopped. They have been, they were paused, I think. Um, So that's been an interesting thing in the media recently. And I actually listened to an interview with Will Young and Chris Sweeney and Andrew Moffat, which took place almost exactly a year ago on the Homo Sapiens podcast. And it's just, it's a, I love that podcast. They're so kind of giggly, but also ask good questions and they get great guests. And it's all just really (laughs) lovely and enjoyable, but also informative to listen to. Um, and they had some clips of some of the, you know, five-year-olds standing up and going, no, no, it's no outsiders. And it's just, it's really lovely. I'm glad that sex education just, is changing take, in that way. It just take time to change. Like, there was, yeah. there was oh, once upon a time, you know, women weren't allowed to wear short skirts or mm. have, I don't know. Go to the bar, even. Or go to, to the bar, to to or wear makeup, or have sex before marriage, or talk about Own periods, a property. Own a property, have a credit card, vote. Mm. So these things will take time. Yeah. Um, but it's good that they're mm. starting now. And Ian McKellen has been very much at the forefront of mm. these discussions for a very long time. All the time, goes to schools all over the country yeah. to talk about it. But he only came out when he was, he was almost 50, but 1988 was when he came out. He was 50? He was almost, he was 49. <sighs> mm. That's so... Can you imagine, like, like half a century? That drives his kind of passion to do it because he probably doesn't want any other person or child to feel like they have to wait till they're 50 in order to come out. Yeah. Um, It shows the power of breaking the silence, I think, as well, and the power of role models who um, can feel like they can be themselves. Definitely. And then talk about it. Definitely. And I really liked how on the David Tennant podcast he talked about his two productions of a... um, thing called Bent. It's a play. It's a play and a film, I think. Mm. And how when he did it first, he was not openly gay, but he was still talking about how important it was to talk about, even though nobody knew. Mm. And then when he did it the second time, he was openly gay. And he came out on a BBC interview. Really? Yeah. They talk about that in his Desert Island Disc with Sue Lawley, which is great. You know, I think it was about Section 28. It, yes, I think you it might was, be right. It was, and it was uh, how opposed he was before it was passed, mm. and um, and then came out mm. during that interview. No, Ian McKellen is, is awesome, and I think one of the, the, the great things about him going into schools is because so many kids love him, and, and one of the reasons for that is because of the Lord of the Rings trilogy, which I myself watched 
a million times when I was younger, so much so that my mum hid the video like the Victorian Albert film and lost it <laughs> like the Victorian Albert film. But it's fine, we got it back on DVD, it was okay. Um, and I think the reason people love Gandalf um, as a character is he he just kind of embodies that sort of goody. Like, he's just an incredibly good wizard, he's there to nurture and guide Frodo, who has this big quest that he has to do, so he's very wise. He's an archetype, he's the sort of archetypal... archetype. Good, very old, warm, wise man. Very warm, lovely. So every kid just, you know, similarly to Dumbledore. Yes, you know, who he gets confused with all the time. Totally. Well, they've got very, they're very similar concepts. They're similar characters. Very similar concepts. And, and that's why I love Ian McKellen so much. It's definitely because of Lord of the Rings, even though that's everyone else's reason. What about you? What's your favourite thing that uh, Ian McKellen has seen? So in? I am not a super fan of Lord of the Rings um, or X-Men. So the two things that he's probably best known for, I don't really know him through that. I first came across him when I was studying Shakespeare at school. I was studying Othello and he played Iago and he did that absolutely brilliantly. So that's interesting actually. He can play mm. you know, the archetypal good and the archetypal bad equally well, but also with understanding of the complexities of both of all his characters. I don't think he ever plays anything in a one-dimensional way. I think that's why I enjoy watching him Mm. act. But also, I like hearing him talk about his process of acting and the characters and his analysis and how he has unpicked it and then performed it. Mm. Um, Well, one of my earliest memories as well uh, of of Ian McKellen was that my dad always used to say that he didn't like Ian McKellen because he tore up the Bible this time on stage. And I remember thinking, okay, um, that's a bit weird. I wonder why he did that. And then now, obviously, as an adult, I completely understand where that came from. And then we looked it up, didn't we? Yeah. And found this interview of him talking about... Why he does it. Why he does it. And actually, it wasn't just one time. He does it... He does it repeatedly if there is a Bible next to his bed. He does, and he doesn't tear up the entire Bible. Like, mm-hmm. when, you, when you first said that, I had an image of him going like, like rip, so, so did all I. the way through. So did I. But it's it's certain page from Leviticus mm-hmm. which condemns a man who lies with a man as he would a woman. Mm-hmm. And in the Bible, it's described as an abomination. And the punishment for abomination is being stoned to death, I think. Yeah. Um, and so he said that he just didn't want anyone to sleep near that and I I I I think it's like that makes so much sense yeah it really really does I mean I (laughs) I think it's funny that your dad was Christian I suppose but but it but his view of one person was so tainted by one because if we think about it we're flipping it on its side here that's someone's religious text Mm. if I went into the Quran and tore out the page about or the passage about women you know, covering themselves up because yeah. I didn't want that to happen. Mm. You could see how that would be interpreted as, or could be I can interpreted see, as I a can bit see disrespectful. Why, yes, I can, and I can see why it would be interpreted as offensive by Christians. But I mean, it's also incredibly offensive to people's sexuality, which is a core part of their identity, and it's not something that they choose. So, mm. I mean, it's just it's it's horrible that you could. It, I just I you wouldn't want to go to sleep next to something which just says you're wrong and you're going to I know. be in eternal fire. Often I fire. feel like the Bible says that about a lot of things, not just... Uh, oh, yeah. Just not homosexuality, just not, not just homosexuality mm. but, but a lot of things. The second figure that we're going to be looking at 
uh, in this week's episode is that 50% of carbon emissions that have been emitted into the atmosphere have been in the last 25 years. So that basically means that in the last 25 years, we have done more damage to the environment than we have in all the previous millennia. This statistic we got from a podcast episode uh, by Guardian Today in Focus with David Wallace-Wells talking about his new book um, about climate change and things that we are kind of very much in denial about and that we shouldn't be. Mm. Um, so the first sentence <clears throat> of his book, which is called The Uninhabitable Earth, Earth yeah. is that it's worse, much worse than, than we you think, think. Than we think it is. And it makes sense because no one likes to talk about it. Yeah. Um, even doing, even preparing for this podcast episode did, we were just kind of the, so the, anxious the more that we looked into it the more we read about it the more we just thought i don't know what to do and i don't know what to say well i think that's part of the reason why people don't like to talk about it which i think is part of the problem mm-hmm. because when you talk about it, it just makes you feel anxious helpless mm-hmm. small definitely uh sometimes that you can't voice your concerns because it just feels a bit apocalyptic and you know what we thought that about mental health and look how that has changed so much in the last five years no one spoke about mental health as openly as they do it's true um and i'm not necessarily conflating the two i'm just saying that that's what you have to do with issues that seem too big to think about or talk about is actually break them down and actually you're you're not too small you're every individual counts and that's what we need to change totally and so the main point of the interview that we listened to initially was talking about how the paris agreement that was signed on the 12th of december 2015 brought together um loads of countries all over the world to try and reduce their carbon footprint so that the total temperature rise wouldn't go above two degrees celsius Mm. and what david is saying in his book is that actually what we're working with is two degrees as a floor floor not a ceiling not a ceiling and that actually we need to stop it getting to three degrees Mm -hmm. because once we get to three degrees food production melting of the ice caps all of that is going to be irreversible irreversible. and he describes how the majority of southern europe would be in permanent drought if we get to three degrees Yes, and, and it just keeps getting worse. cities over the world will be underwater. Yeah. We're also going to have, I think he said something like twice the population. By the so end he said the by century. the end of the century, we'll have 50% more people, but 50% less grain. Yeah. Which is quite Baffling. terrifying. And um, I think that there are constantly so many misconceptions about climate change because so many people, like we said earlier, feel like they're just too small to make an actually long-lasting impact mm. and we talked about food waste uh, a couple of episodes ago and even something like food waste that contributes to carbon totally, emissions because decomposing food releases methane methane is 20 times more mm-hmm. um, detrimental than carbon dioxide mm. to, to global warming and if food waste was a country it'd be the third largest country so think about In the how world. much think about how much greenhouse gas we're getting from simply wasting food Mm. um and then the specific foods themselves that you can choose mm -hmm. to make an impact on the environment by eating less meat for example because Mm, because the cows release methane and that is an incredibly toxic Mm -hmm. greenhouse gas also for any kind of other meat poultry pork is still the way it's produced mass produced in terms of you know, industrial farming, that's completely inefficient. And mm. uh, I think it accounts for a half of 
our greenhouse gas emissions are from animal agriculture. So those sorts of things. But, you know, those, are, those kind of thoughts and views are becoming fairly more mainstream and people are trying to sort of start people to understand have, Yeah, and we're talking about it a lot more and I think people are doing right. their little things like e-coffee cups and trying yeah. to go to the greengrocers and not having plastic, right. you know, around but your what David, food. what David makes his point is that these things are great, but they're not going to stop the temperature rise from being under three degrees. What actually is going to prevent that happening is voting for certain policy change and infrastructure change. Mm. Um, and I also thought about this. It seems a little bit privileged of us to be able to assume that everyone can make those changes because you just can't. And not everyone can think about where they're sourcing their food and how um, and where their meat is coming from. A lot of the time it's when can I get food and how can I feed my family? Absolutely, absolutely. Um, so this is a very privileged discussion to be having. Totally. That doesn't totally. mean that we shouldn't have it. Totally. And also it means that, you know, how food is distributed and regulated needs to change as a whole. Yeah. Rather than just us so, changing what we're doing. Mm -hmm. well. Individuals are important, but governments, policies, mm -hmm. businesses, mm -hmm. building it into their business totally. model and doing everything that they can is also critical. Totally. Because I think... Even from a business model, I think businesses now are still thinking, how am I going to make the most money? How are we going to, you know, capitalise mm. the most mm -hmm. um, on what we're doing? But I also think, not hopefully, that businesses are realising that lots of consumers, it matters to them. And that when they talk about the good, it's called like corporate social responsibility. Well, oh yeah, gosh, no, I know a lot about that. No, no, but it is true. Like people, I think companies are... I don't think it's going to be fast enough though. No, I, I know. I don't think we have enough time. Yeah. I think, wasn't it something that we have 12 years to like revert, like to stop? I think that's, I, I don't now. know if that's a myth or not. I think it's, it's, it makes me even more nervous when people start predicting things mm. because... That, and it also it's, it's a bit shaky sometimes because you think, well, how do you, how can you actually do that? Can you yeah. really predict it? I, I think it's more scary. How the oceans prediction that freaks me out. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think, but you can see just from looking backwards and from looking at the present. You know, we've got crazy extreme weather more and more. We've mm. all noticed that. Mm. That's where you just think, okay, oh wow, this is, it's real. I wanted to read out a section, um, it was a review by Mark O'Connell from The Guardian. The book is extremely effective in shaking the reader out of complacency. Some things I did not want to learn, but learned anyway. Mm. Every return flight from London to New York cost the Arctic three square metres of ice. For every half degree of warming, societies see between a 10 and 20% increase in the likelihood of armed conflict. Global plastic produ production is expected to triple by 2050, by which point there will be more plastic than fish in the planet's oceans. The margins of my review copy of the book are scrawled with expressions of terror and despair, declining in, in articulacy as the pages proceed until it's all just cartoon sad faces and swear words. Wow. Uh, Question about the um, armed conflict. Why would you have more armed conflict if the world... Because if you've got less food and less water, those are the key that. things. Yeah. I think that's again something that people don't think about. That that's a huge start problem with each other. Yeah, totally. Mm. Oh my god, that's so scary. 
I know. But what do you think about this? Because because so one of the criticisms of the author of this book, not only that people have seen him as a bit hypocritical because he's lived in cities, he had a child while he was writing the book. Yeah, or just... but you can you can highlight an issue without mm. necessarily you know there are loads no, I know. of people that again talking about mental health. I don't know why it's just popped into my head. There are loads of people that have terrible mental health practices but are still trying to raise awareness about yeah. it. You and I think well, he's it's interesting because he's a journalist so he can write and communicate the message very well mm-hmm. I think that's the key mm. his key role definitely as a communicator plus if we're going to that you know if we look at someone like him and say right you have to now live in a self-sufficient house totally in the middle of the countryside you can't have any children um Mm. that's kind of a bit unfair just because he's raising the red flag yeah I know but he is going to come under scrutiny for that because he's it's annoying isn't it he's a whistleblower yeah, in some that's ways true. that's true mm. that's true um positive <laughs> <laughs> yes let's end this on a positive um what sorts of things can we do as individuals buy from charity shops buy from charity shops I really didn't realise the impact of that until I watched Stacey Dooley's um documentary on oh, yeah. water and cotton. not thinking not thinking that we can fall back on recycling because actually recycling takes a lot of energy to do and it's not but still not always you know, efficient. don't no don't not do it no but, but like but, always think of reusing and reducing your consumption rather than mm-hmm. assuming that we can recycle. so something that i am going to try and do in edinburgh is go to green graces so that i'm buying enough food just for myself not big packets which then will hopefully reduce the food waste mm-hmm. and then will also reduce the plastic i hope Mm. what about you I think that I next time I want to buy something new I'm going to go you're going to think twice I'm going to think twice and I'm going to go and look at the charity shops and Mm -hmm. actually see and do clothes swaps that's always good because I actually don't shop a lot but still Mm. it's going to make an impact Mm -hmm. and I think the other thing is as uncomfortable as it is let's just talk about it let's just bring it up in conversation Mm. Even when it makes you feel horrible. Don't. I get a lot of people come, like will say like, oh yeah, like I, I don't, I, I wouldn't be vegan or give up meat or anything like that because I just feel like life is short, you only live once and climate change is a much bigger issue than me as an individual. But then if the entire world has that attitude... I know. Then if that... the entire world went vegan, that'd be really cool. Mm. Or just has more vegan recipes. You don't have to go no, the I whole know. way. No, 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 and there are... That's the other thing that's great in the last couple of years... There are so many more accessible ways of being vegetarian and vegan. The ingredients are there. Mm. People are switched on to it. It's super simple. There's loads of great recipes. Anna Jones is my favourite um, for vegetarian recipes. And, yeah, I think just be experimental with what you cook. And Did try you ever and think you would be vegetarian? Did you ever think you would be vegetarian this time last year? No, definitely not. Yay! The third figure that we are going to talk about today is the painting of the Mona Lisa by Leonardo da Vinci. It was painted between 1503 and 1506, or so it is believed, and it is one of the most famous paintings in the world. I think and we're going to talk about, about twenty-five times. What? How do you mean? Like an image of it, or Sorry, in the gallery? I made that up. <laughs> no, as in you're just brought up around it, aren't you? Yeah. You, you're, you're showing the Mona Lisa all the mm-hmm. time. And I actually asked Charlotte that we could, if we could include this because I wanted to to think about why why is that why is it so much fascination mm. around the Mona Lisa? And my first question about it was, is it because it's from Leonardo da Vinci, who is obviously this 
genius. Um, yeah. So that plays a part because he is such a famous artist in himself, but also a famous scientist, psychologist, mathematician, mm-hmm. engineer. It's a polymath. Mm-hmm. He was very good at very many different things. That also partly meant that he didn't actually do that many paintings Mm -hmm. and that many works of art, which means that what we do have and where we are sure that it was him and not an assistant or someone who learned from him, then that makes it more famous. You know, when you've got fewer of something, then it's more rare and more precious. And also by a famous person. Yeah. But it's also circumstantial. So the Mona Lisa in particular, especially in the 20th century, there were certain things that happened which meant that it would have been in the press, in the media, and in the public consciousness more than other paintings. Okay. So these include it being stolen in 1911. In the 1950s, it had acid thrown on it. Or this, I can't remember if it actually happened or if it was an attempt. Mm -hmm. There was another attempt, or it happened, of red paint in the 1970s as well. That's why it's now behind bulletproof glass. Okay. And as far as I know, I think that Michelangelo's sculpture of the Pietà is also behind very strong glass in the va- in it's in the Vatican in Rome. But I don't think there are very many works of art in the world that have that amount of security. And it's really interesting because when if you ever go and see it in the Louvre, it feels like you're going to a red carpet, and it is that aggressive. Mm-hmm. It's that aggressive camera photo taking. Totally. That I think, you know, if you, it's the same thing that Rose McGowan was talking about in this podcast, right? If you imagine yourself as the Mona Lisa, terrifying all day, mm. tourists, like people in your face. Mm. So it's just, mm. it's, you're like in a, you're in a crowd. Mm. And no, true. And I mean, sometimes when, you, when I think about it, I think what, what makes it, why do certain people, certain works of art, certain things have that much public interest, you know? Why some people I think more famous it's than others, why are paintings more famous than others? Is there a mystery around who she was? Is there something about her expression that's very quite it's quite authentic? Yes. Or something that yes, people I'd think say, is quite it draws them in? I'd say yes to all of that, but I think that people love the idea and like to collect her and seeing this in the same way that they if they go to Paris they want to see the Eiffel Tower Mm -hmm. if they go to Peru you've got all of those crowds and crowds of people in Machu Picchu Mm. like it's the same tourist flood Mm. that ends up being in particular places in the world and the Mona Lisa in the Louvre has become one of those so I think that adds to the hype but so yeah and then actually as an individual painting it has an incredible mystery about the expression Mm. um partly exaggerated by the fact that her eyebrows are very faint because when you can't see someone's eyebrows they're very expressive means that you can't really read their expression oh interesting really interesting and so there's a technique called sfumato which means kind of smokiness that leonardo da vinci was very accomplished at and he's used that a lot in this painting around her eyes around her mouth and her smile in particular has been talked about by totally. art historians, people who mm. see it. Um, it's kind of captivating because you can't, there's something you there can't where you can't quite put your finger on it. Yeah. yeah. And it's interesting because, so Giorgio Vasari was one of the first art historians. He wrote a book called The Lives of the Artists in 1550. So this was after Leonardo da Vinci had died. And he supposedly saw the Mona Lisa and wrote a lot about it. So right from the beginning of when people were documenting, talking about art, it was a key piece. He wrote about the smile and he talked about it as 
being as lively as the live individual I'm paraphrasing mm. um and said that Mona Lisa herself was played to by musicians mm. which I think is says he doesn't want it to be melancholy but this is the kind of like half smile half sadness and then it makes you curious to learn more about that woman as well mm. we don't know very much about her who was she Do we she know? was called lisa garandini mm -hmm. and she was married to a man called francesco del giocondo um it's believed that they had just celebrated the birth of their third child which is why this portrait might have been commissioned from leonardo mm -hmm. by francesco her husband okay. um and going back to that kind of link of the smile and this name, so Giocondo means uh, smile in Italian. And Leonardo was known for playing kind of puns in his portraits. So there's a painting of a woman called Cecilia Gallerini and the ermine and Gallerini, that's all linked. And that is in the portrait. What's ermine? An ermine is a type of, it's like a stoat. It's like oh. a white, it's like mink. Okay. Um, and then there's a portrait of Ginevra de Benci and Ginevra is related to juniper so there's a juniper bush in the background what would yours be something to do with horses because that's what Lorimer translates to it's really? like bridles and oh cool like okay that. just be on a horse <laughs> awesome <laughs> um he's very good at drawing horses actually I'm sure it'd be I mean if Leonardo, well, yeah. it'd be a lovely portrait <laughs> also if Leonardo da Benci was painting a portrait of me I'd, I'd be like let's forget the portrait and let's have a chat <laughs> All of the things that you did in your life. <laughs> Be pretty cool. Yeah. <laughs> um, Sidetrack, actually. My, I was talking to my friend Mary about who they would take to the moon if you could take five people. Oh, no, to Mars. And you were going to try and save the human race and you had a big project on, on Mars. And she said that Leonardo da Vinci would be a great person to take. I was like, yes, that would be brilliant. It'd be really useful. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, sorry. So Giocondo, smile. Mm -hmm. And then her smile being such a... A weird interesting part of the picture so my one of my my 16 year old theories when I first studied this painting was that he focused particularly on the smile because of the name mm. link mm. Um, and what was it significant was there a significance about it being you know in the time of the renaissance oh definitely um there were portraiture really changed during the renaissance so for anyone who doesn't know the renaissance was a period of european history um it began in florence and it was a rebirth which is what the french word renaissance means of ancient greek and roman ideals philosophies um, techniques mm. in the way that they sculpted um, this kind of focus on trying to make things look realistic um, but also incredibly beautiful and pursuing knowledge and really striving for everything that you could in your current lifetime rather than thinking I need to prepare for getting into heaven essentially okay. so that was the me medieval mindset of it was all about the kind of judgment of God and so their individual lives you don't know the names of individual artists because they were part of a trade that was with the church when you start to get the oh. renaissance and you start to read plato socrates aristotle it's much more about the pursuit of knowledge finding out what you can living everything that you can before you die do you think the reason it began florence is because florence is a place of so much knowledge wealth beauty yeah so florence it's was a kind of it was inspiring. a collection of interesting um philosophers artists and it kind of grew into 
a, a group and then a wider ideals of talking oh. about these um yeah this philosophy and it's known as humanism so that's oh, okay. that kind of underpins the renaissance so humanism is about this focus on the individual human beauty mm. knowledge quite often um pagan in that it's mm. not always about christian um, so they started to paint things like the Greek and Roman myths and gods and goddesses. So that's you get you get that resurgence in the Renaissance of that. Um, but in terms of portraiture, again, it's kind of an individual being painted um, and much more realistic because it's called three quarters sort of pose. So instead of it being in profile where it's like side on, looks mm. very two dimensional. That's how they would have been seen in coins. And then there was a shift to kind of not full on because that would be also quite flat, but just turned to the side. And that's what you see in the Mona Lisa. Um, but in another thing I studied kind of from a psychology perspective is that she's got her left cheek shown. And there was an experiment by Michael Nichols um, about what is communicated when you have your left cheek shown or your right cheek shown. And because the right side of your brain, which is kind of more creative and emotional, reads the left side of your face, mm. she is seen supposedly as more loving and loyal and you have a more of an emotional attachment if someone shows their left side, whereas the right side, because that's read by the left side of the brain, mm. is more analytical, potentially more kind of uh, reserved. And I loved finding out all those tiny little details and why we might be more attracted to this painting and find it more intriguing than a different one. Yeah, that's really, mm. really interesting. The other thing that I looked at was the golden ratio. So we talked about this in a very early episode of the podcast. Uh, the golden ratio is a number kind of, so it's one to 1.618. And you can work it out from the Fibonacci sequence, which is calculated like one, one, two, three, five, eight. So you're adding the previous two to make the next number in the sequence. Mm. And it's seen in nature and it's seen both consciously and unconsciously used by artists in very beautiful works of art. And there've been ex sort of experiments by psychologists such as Gustav Fechner, who got people to choose which square or rectangle that they preferred and they thought was most attractive. And people would, without realizing it, choose the golden ratio proportions. So it's something that humans are very drawn to. And there've been all sorts of, sometimes I think a bit shaky studies of how the golden ratio is seen in the Mona Lisa. But I think that you've got to be careful with any work of art, because if you move around the proportion and kind of change the size and you can you can sort of find it in lots and lots and lots of things. That doesn't mean that it was used on purpose. But, but it also could have been used subconsciously. It could have been so used subconsciously. Yeah. yeah, because you when you're just trying to make something look beautiful, mm. you could end up doing that. Like the Twitter logo and Apple logo. Yeah, absolutely. Both follow the golden ratio. But also interesting that another conspiracy is that the Mona Lisa looks very similar to Leonardo's own self-portrait in terms of the proportions they've got kind of similar eyes nose where everything is placed and this might be because he used his own face when he when she wasn't there for him to paint but also probably because he had some kind of system of proportions of how he painted faces oh, okay. where he thought this is going to be the most beautiful yeah. kind of an elegant way of painting a face that was all really interesting thanks Shah. you're welcome <laughs> Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode of The Figure Podcast. 
as always, we always love to hear from you. So please get in contact at the figure podcast on Twitter and Instagram and the figure podcast at gmail.com via email. And we've decided that we are going to leave every episode with some takeaways from this episode. And I think the first takeaway is to check out the Ian McKellen episode of the David Tennant podcast. Absolutely. And every other episode of the David Tennant podcast. (laughs) (laughs) And just to talk more about climate change. Yeah. uh, And potentially implement one of those things that we were talking about into your own life Mm -hmm. and see what happens. Definitely. And I think for Mona Lisa, maybe try and see past the fame of an image and look at look at it as a as a person as a painting mm. it's really difficult to separate the fame from whatever you're looking totally. at because there are some beautiful photos or paintings out there that aren't famous but are equally as stunning mm. and i think something i always encourage people to do um myself included if you ever go to a gallery or an exhibition try not to look at it through your screen look at it with your eyes because you're always going to get a better postcard or image on the internet of whatever you've taken a photo of um and just try and live in the moment and go and enjoy it i just went i went to see the dior exhibition which we will cover in a future episode and i really enjoyed just that hour of Mm. melting into beautiful fashion awesome until next time until next week bye bye